So I don't know if, maybe this, this didn't come across clearly last week because I had two uh, of our elders ask me, so what exactly is the sermon series that we're in right now? Are we preaching Genesis or what's happening? I'm like, oh, okay, I must not have been very clear about that. So we're not preaching Genesis, although that would be really fun, and we are actually back in Genesis today. Maybe we'll get to do that sometime soon. Uh, the sermon series that we're in is, is called Questions That God Asks. And kind of the background of it, I want you to think about the fact we, we love to ask God questions, don't we? We love to ask God questions like, why? Why is this happening? Right, what? God, what are you doing? When is this going to be over? And usually, our, at least part of our heart in those questions is that if we, if we knew what was going on, if we had a little bit more information, that that would help in some way. I guess we could talk a lot about that, but that's, that's not the focus of the series, right? It's not our questions about God. It's the questions that God asks us because we see that throughout Scripture that, in fact, God asks his people questions. And that when he does that, God isn't asking questions because he somehow needs information that he doesn't already have. He's God. He knows everything. So there's something else at work there when God is asking us questions. And when he does that, what we believe that God is doing is God is drawing toward us in connection, that when God asks us questions, it's because he desires to connect with us. And it's one of the ways he condescends to us. One of the ways he comes to us is by asking us questions. And what those questions do, they don't just connect us with God, but they also expose us. That God is asking something that he already knows because he wants us to see it for ourselves. And those things aren't mutually exclusive. They're not set against each other. It's both of those things. That in exposing us, God draws near to us to connect with us to connect us to him. And so the passage that we're in today in Genesis 16, we see again a question that God asks this woman, Hagar. So I'm gonna ask Alicia Harrison to come up, and Alicia is gonna read our passage for us. We kind of expanded it a little bit just because I want you to hear some of the story of what's happening around these questions. And as she reads, I want you to listen for the questions, okay? Okay. So listen for the questions that God asks in this passage. Great. Do you want to climb up behind that? No, you don't have to. I'm just teasing. (laughs) Genesis 16. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she said. 
Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall now name him Ishmael for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Ber Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Baird. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Thanks, Alicia. Do you guys know, did you guys hear, what are the questions that God asked in that passage? Why? Yeah, why are you running? What from? Anybody else, the questions that you heard in this passage? Where are you going? Yeah. Where are you coming from and where are you going? And those are the questions that we're gonna key in on this morning. Where are you coming from and where are you going? And what, what we'll see is that God's question exposes that Hagar is lost. That's what God does for us. His question exposes that we're lost. And he does that so that we may be found. So if you're taking notes, those are our two points, okay? God's question exposes that we're lost and he does that so that we may be found. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that you desire uh, to come to us, Lord, to connect with us, to find us. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would show us our own lostness in the places that we're lost and that in doing that, that you would teach us what it means to be people who are found in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So we gotta talk a little bit about the background of this story because it's a little bit uh, unexpected, right? And one of the things that uh, I want you to see right out the gate is that the Bible is not a story of God using perfect people to accomplish his plans. That's sometimes a misconception that we have about scripture, right? That if, oh, we could just be a little bit more like Abraham or a little bit more like Sarah, then we would, like, we would really be able to be following Jesus. That is actually not what this passage is about, is it? Because Abraham and Sarah, or I guess in this passage, they're Abram and Sarai. They haven't been renamed yet. They do some really horrible things. And this, this isn't an exception in scripture. This is part and parcel for the way that God operates. That what we see throughout scripture, throughout the bi- biblical narrative, is that God chooses people, real people, real people who are full of sin and have been sinned against to work out his purpose and his promises in the world. And that is good news for us, isn't it? Because we are those people. Broken people, lost people, people who have been sinned against and people who sin. And what we see in this passage is that God delights to use even people like us. And it gives us hope. I want to talk a little bit about kind of the three characters, three of the characters that we see in this story just to kind of orient us to what's going on. Okay, so first, we have this guy named, in this passage, his name is Abram. Later on, he'll be renamed by God and God will call him Abraham, okay? 
Abram, guys, is a wanderer. He's nothing special. He's basically just a, just a dude, okay, that God has called, and God has called him out of his city, and he's told Abraham, at this point, he's already made promises to Abraham, not because Abraham is something special, but because God has delighted to set his love on him, and God has given him some amazing promises, and the promises that God has given him, he's promised him that he will make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. He's promised him, I will give you a great name. I'm gonna give you a land, And he's promised him, I'm gonna bless you so that the peoples of the world may be blessed through you. He's told Abram, you will be a conduit of my blessing to the world. And what we've seen in Abram all the way up even to this point in the story is that Abram has at times responded to those promises in great faith. And at times he has responded to those promises in the opposite of faith, without faith. And yet God is still at work with, with this man because God has made promises to him. So that's Abram. Then we have Sarai, who later will be re- renamed Sarah. And Sarah has been called to be a participant in these promises. Because for these promises to work, there has to be a child, right? A child, a promise. And so Sarai has been swept up into this grand narrative of God's redemptive work in history. But here's what we see happening with Sarah in this passage is that she realizes that her, um, the, basically she's getting past childbearing years, okay? And she's very aware of that. That in fact, when God gave this promise, she was already past the point where she expected to be able to have kids. But you know, God made the promise, so she's kind of hanging with it, right? But a lot of time goes by, 10 years. And, and Sarah Uh, starts to feel this pressure to actually make God's promises happen for him. And what she's decided to do is to act outside of God's promises to do something to bring those promises to pass in her own strength. And so what she does is she kind of adopts this very common cultural practice of the time. And let's just be very clear, okay? What Sarah does is not endorsed by scripture. This is a very important principle. Often, scripture tells us something that happened, not because it is endorsing that thing, but just because it tells us that this thing happened, okay? So scripture is often, this is a time where scripture is descriptive, not prescriptive. It tells us what happened. It doesn't tell us what to do in this situation. So what Sarah has done by taking matters into her own hands is that she's taken this servant who who belonged to her, and given her to her husband and said, I want you to have a child with, with this woman, with this servant Hagar, and that child will be like my child. And that way we'll be able to make God's promise come to pass for us. And Abram agrees to this. They've got a- Abram now and, and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, kind of working out their own plot and plan and their own strength and their own power to bring the promises of God to pass. And what that results in is is abuse for this woman, Hagar. Hagar's name actually means the immigrant. And she's from Egypt, is what the text tells us. And to just do like just a little bit of a dive into what we likely know about Hagar is that Abram and Sarai have already spent a little bit of time in Egypt. That uh, there was a famine, and so Abram and Sarai went to Egypt. And uh, this was a time where Abraham did not exercise very much faith because what he did is he lied to Pharaoh and he said, I know that my wife is really beautiful, so instead I'll just call her my sister because otherwise they might kill her and take my wife. 
Yikes. And so Pharaoh takes Sarai into his house to be his wife. But God protects, right? He protects Sarah, he protects Abraham, he protects his promise, and he sends these, these plagues on the house so that the Pharaoh will tune into the fact that this is not good. And Pharaoh's like, he finally gets the picture, and he's like, hey, you have lied to me, Abram, this is not good. Get out of here, but I'm gonna bless you because clearly God's favor is upon you. Wow, there's a lot happening there, right? One of the things that Pharaoh does is he gives this servant, Hagar, to be with Abraham and Sarah now. So this woman is alone. She's away from her family, from her country. And she here is totally taken advantage of. She's a prop in Abram and Sarai's scheme. This is other people's sin happening to her. Rather than the promise of God being a blessing to Abram and Sarai and that becoming a blessing to other people, now their efforts to make that happen have become a curse on this woman. And then we see that she conceives. And verse four tells us that she looked with contempt on her mistress. So now when Hagar gains the advantage, she's been disadvantaged, she's been taken advantage of. Now when she gains the advantage, she presses that advantage against Sarai. She looks at her with contempt. Obviously Sarai does not like that very much, right? So we see the dysfunction just continue to spin because she goes to Abram and she says, you did this to me. Like, well, we're kind of both involved in this, but okay. And he tells her, hey, you know what? She's in your hands. Do to her whatever you want. So this man of promise now abdicates his responsibility to use that privilege to protect someone else and he actually hands her over for more abuse. This is messed up. And then what Hagar does is she flees. Of course she does. She's in intense pain, agony, isolation. And so she she leaves, she runs away, she escapes. And then we see in verse six kind of where this has landed her. Excuse me, verse seven. It says, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. So Hagar is out there in uh, the wilderness, which is a very dangerous place, right? There's no protection for her. It's a place that's full of robbers and bandits. I kind of think of it as like the Wild West, like it's a desert, you know, and there's like tumbleweeds blowing around. And she's at kind of her wits end. She's at, she, she doesn't know where to go, but she's sitting at this well wondering, what happens next? She's in a very desperate place. You gotta wonder, like, what did what did Hagar pray in that situation? I don't know what what do you pray in that situation? What have you prayed in those situations where you have been very desperate? And this is where God comes to Hagar. I love that verse seven starts out and it says the angel of the Lord found her. That God came and he found her right where, he, right where she was. In the midst, in the place of her desperation. And he asks her these two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? 
Where have you come from and where are you going? And what God is doing with those questions is he's exposing that Hagar is lost. Let's just talk about this first question. Where have you come from? If you're Hagar, imagine what I'm thinking in that situation. Where have I come from? I've come from this place that is full of abuse. I've come from a place that's full of isolation. I've come from a place that is full of so much pain. That's what she says. That's how she answers. I'm fleeing. I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. I'm running away. And that that place of desperation, remember, that's where God meets her. But this, this second question, where are you going? She doesn't answer that question. She knows where she's coming from, but she doesn't know where she's going. It's crickets. And the implication there for us is that she's lost. She doesn't know where she's going. Anywhere but there. But anywhere but there isn't a place, and it's not a destination. I just kind of picture Hagar, it's like she's stuck at a truck stop, right? That's kind of what the well was in the ancient world. It's the place that you would stop and get refueled as you continued on your journey. But that's the place that Hagar is stuck, at the truck stop. With no idea what comes next, she's lost. So yes, God comes to her in her place of pain, in her place of desperation. And when he, when he does that, he exposes her to the fact, he helps her own the fact that she's lost. That's what he's pointing out to her. I think the question for us, for you, is where are you coming from? Where are you experiencing pain or desperation in your own life? Maybe like Hagar, you've been used or abused and then cast away. Maybe people who are supposed to protect you have become passive or handed you over apathetic to your own hurt maybe you're abandoned and alone maybe the pain and desperation in your life comes from what you know that you've done that you look at your life and you think man I have made such a mess of this and I'm desperate or maybe you're so tired of the desperation you've just become numb to it. And it could be physical pain, it could be the pain of unmet desire, but all of those things can drive us, right? So where are you coming from? To get to this moment right now, to be here this morning, where are you coming from into this morning? And the what we see in this passage and what is true about where you are right now is that God has come to you right there, right here this morning. In the place of your pain, in the place of your desperation, that that is a place where our God desires to meet with you. He doesn't find you once you've gotten out of that and fixed it for yourself. He comes to you right in the middle of it. What are you running from? 
What's chasing you? What's brought you to where you are this morning? Where are you? Where have you come from? And then I want us to hear the second question too. Where are you going? Because here's, ha- here's what happens in our lives, guys. When we become so focused on fleeing from what we're running from, it always makes us lost. And it doesn't always look like we're lost though, right? Like you may look like you're going somewhere. Like you're going places. What does that mean, right? Even that kind of has the seeds of what we're talking about in it. When we say, oh, look at that person. They're really going, so- they're really going places. We don't know where they're going, but they look like they're going somewhere. Isn't that so often true about us? That what we desperately want is to look like we're going somewhere even if we have no idea where that place is. Where are you going? What's it all for? What is, what is that promotion that you're so aiming for gonna do for you? When you, when you finally get there, where are you going? And here's what's true about pain in our lives. That pain is, uh, pain is a really powerful, powerful fuel when we put it in the gas tank. Pain will get you out of a lot of things and will get you to a lot, will get you to a lot of places. But if that pain is what is directing you, all it can do is make us more lost. The pain, right, and avo- a pain, when it drives us, drives us to avoid pain in the future because of pain we've experienced in the past. But that can never get us where we want to go because all of the places in life that are worth going are places where we're going to experience more pain. And when, when we let pain become the primary driver for our lives, all it can do is drive us deeper into ourselves. All it can do is make us narcissistic at the end of the day. And again, that is not to not have compassion on those things. Jesus desires to meet us there, but he also desires to to give us a new destination, to let something else be the fuel that's driving us. How many of you are are from Nashville? (laughs) Yes. Very few, okay? How many of you are not from Nashville? That's most of us. Uh, what did you come here to find? We all came here looking for something, right? Have you found it yet? Some of you have been here a very short time, so maybe for those of you who have been here a little bit longer. Has Nashville given you all the things that you hoped it would give you? Maybe it has. Maybe you have become, uh, the, maybe, you're the, maybe you're the famous person in our midst, I have no idea. <laughs> That's what most of us come here to find, right? Or some of us at least. Has it given you, if, it, if Nashville has given you the things that you came here hoping to find, have those things satisfied you? Makes you think of the rose pepper sign. I think this was like last week, right? It says four shots in and I'm saying, no, I want to move to this city. <laughs> yeah. But like, seriously though, right? What that is exposing in us, in us is that we always think the next place is the place where we're finally gonna find what we're looking for. Man, in a room like this, 
you guys, you are, we have a lot of very intelligent people in this room. A lot of very beautiful people, a lot of very accomplished people, a lot of very talented people. And man, it is easy to look out here and to think, oh, all these people, they know where they're going. But the, the question that Jesus asks us here is so kind. The question God asks us here is so kind. Where are you going? And then what he desires to open us up to is the lostness uh, that we so often fall into. The lostness that's often driving us, that we're all in so many ways sitting at that truck stop. But God exposes our lostness not to leave us there, but because that's where he desires to come and to find us. I think about in Luke 15, it's this passage of all these parables that Jesus is telling. There's the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, also known as the prodigal son, right? And Jesus is telling all these parables and it says the context of it is that all of these, all of these sinners are drawing near to Jesus. They're hanging on his words and all these other people, scripture calls them the Pharisees, these self-righteous people, are looking down their noses at them. And Jesus is telling all these parables because what he wants people to see is actually knowing that you're lost is a good thing. In fact, his mission is to come and seek and save those who are lost. So us seeing our lostness is a gift. And we're going to look in this passage, how does this become a gift for Hagar? Okay, so in verse 11, it says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, and you shall bear a son. You know, this is the first annunciation in Scripture. Can you think of any other people who had their birth um, enunciated like this? You can, you can answer out loud if you can think of anyone. Who? John the Baptist, yes, that's right. Who else? Our Lord, Jesus Christ, right? <laughs> also happens in the Old Testament. It happens to Samson, fun fact. It also happens to Isaac, the child of promise. But Hagar is the first woman who has the birth of her son enunciated like the angel comes and gives a baby shower to her. They're celebrating. God's celebrating this birth of this child. This woman, a woman who is lost and desperate, who is at a well, who has, been, who has been abused and because of that has become contemptuous to the people around her, who has fled from that and has nowhere to go, has no idea where she's going, right there in the desert, our Lord comes to her and says, you are having a baby and I want to celebrate that with you. That in her lostness, God meets her. And he meets her there and he makes promises to her. She has just left a family of promise. And for, for good reason. And she struck out on her own and what God does is he comes to her and he makes promises to her. I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And some of us are like, wow, there's a lot of kids. I don't know. Climate change, there's a lot of going on here, right? For us, having a lot of kids doesn't always sound like a blessing. In this culture, this was like winning the lottery. This was, this was such good news. This was an honor-shame culture. And the way you participated in honor was you had a house that was full of kids. You were, you were building up your family. And God comes to Hagar and he says, I'm gonna bless you with the greatest blessing that you can imagine, which is your house is gonna, you're gonna be the mother of all of these people. He blesses her. And in that, do you hear it? He's giving her a future and a hope. He's telling her, you're gonna live. Because this promise can't come true if, you, if they die in the wilderness. 
there's a future for her, a hope. Because her son has a future, she has a future because that's the way that culture operated. And then, in verse 9, we see that God sends her back to this super dysfunctional family of blessing, of promise. And as you read along the story, you see she's received back there. And Ishmael's honored by Abraham, celebrated by him. There's a lot more to that story. We're not going to preach all of that this morning. And eventually what happens to Hagar is she, she leaves the house of Abraham one, one more time. And the reason is that the promise of God is not going to flow through Hagar and her family. The promise of God is going to come through the child of promise that's going to be born not by human effort but by the grace of God. But even though the promise of God is not going to come through Hagar, the promise of God has come to Hagar. And that's true for us. Many of us, as far as I know, are not uh, ethnic Jews. That we are not people in the line of God's promise. The promise has not come through us, but the promise has come to us, hasn't it? And the promise has come to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ that he is through that line of Abraham, he, he is the blessing to bless the world, to come and to seek and save us who are lost. And Jesus, when he came, he was not lost. John 13, 13, 13, 13 says that Jesus knew where he was coming from and where he was going that on purpose he left heaven, his eternal glory, not to get away from pain, but to step into our pain. He was not running from something, he was running to something, to us and to the cross. He knew where he was coming from and he knew where he was going, which was back to God. And that he did that because he was he was desiring to find us and to give us a home. To tell us that we are not lost, to bring him back into his father's house. Jesus also says, hey, I have gone to prepare a place for you. That's what he says to the disciples. I've gone to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, will I not come and take you with me to be there? And when Jesus says that, in the Gospel of John, he's, he's saying what uh, an engaged person would say, an engaged man would say to the woman he was engaged to. He would come and they would get engaged and they would have this big party and then he would say to her, I'm gonna go back to my father's house and I'm gonna build a room on that house for us to live in together. You're like, how romantic. Maybe not for most of us, but that was what they did then, okay? So he's telling her, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna prepare a place for, for us to live together and I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna take you and we're gonna live there together. We're gonna be together always. That's what Jesus says to us. I've, I've found you because I've got a place that I've prepared for you and I'm gonna bring you to be there with me. And we've talked about this before. It's easy for us to think about that as heaven, as if heaven is this like destination that Jesus has come to get us to. 
as if like Jesus' whole mission was to take us out of here and get us to that place. And that, that is true, that there's a heaven that's gonna come to earth. And when, when that happens, we're gonna live with Jesus in this new place. But more than a destination that he's taking us to, Jesus has promised that he's brought us to himself. That what it means for us to be found in God is for us to be restored to who we were most created to be, which is to say that we've had our relationship with God restored because that's who we find who we truly are is in relationship with him. And so for us to be found is for us to be found in relationship with God. That's the blessing that we receive that we're part of this heavenly family, this multitude, that we actually have been ingrafted into the family of God. We've been adopted as children of Abraham, as children of promise. And that when we're there, when we've been brought home into the presence of our Father, into relationship with him as we have, that we can find rest and peace. Augustine, we talked about him last week. You can tell I'm reading a book about him because I've got a lot of quotes from him on my mind, right? What Augustine says is, my soul was restless until I found my rest in you. And that's true for us. Where are we going? And when we're going anywhere uh, but to God, what we find is restlessness in ourselves. And the invitation is that we would come and find ourselves in him who's found us and that there we would find our rest. And to be found in Christ, it doesn't mean cleaning yourself up. It doesn't mean you getting to a place where God is. It doesn't mean showing up at church so that he can find you presentable enough. Oh, it means that in the truck stop of our loneliness, turning to God even there, crying out to him from the midst of our pain, from the midst of our shame, our self-absorption and our sin, our desperation, that we would turn to him there. A word that scripture uses for that is repentance. And that then we would celebrate knowing that when we turn to God there, we found that he has already found us. And we say, like Hagar, you are a God of seeing, and I have seen him who sees me. Some of you, many of us, right, have already had that um, moment of being found by God, of turning to him and saying, I need you in my desperation and pain. But it's possible for us, actually as Christians, right, to live in the lostness. Not that we would actually be able to separate ourselves from God, but that we would forget the fact that we've been found. That we would be desperately trying to find something we've already been given. That can be true in our Christian lives. So the, the, the call to us, right, even in our desperation now, is that we would be turning to Jesus, that we would be reminded of the Jesus who has come to us and who has found us that we would be reminded that you would hear that you've been given a home. And there is a way that we experience that home in a very real way now in the presence of God. 
that we live in the presence of God, that he's with us, that he's in us, that even here, being here together as the people of God is an expression of the fact that we have been found. This is a place you get to come and experience that. But what's also true about us in our lives is that there's desire in our hearts that will remain unmet until we see our Jesus face to face. That's true. And so this road that we're on, like Hagar, it's, it's a pilgrim road. It's a refugee road that yes, our God is with us now and yet we look forward to the time that we will see him face to face. And what that does, friends, is that helps explain to us the longing that we still feel for something. It explains why sometimes we are driven to so many other things. And it calls us consistently to the maturity of reminding ourselves and rooting ourselves in the fact that despite how we may or may not feel on any given day that we have been found. And that what we're doing here in our time together, what we do in our small groups, what we do in, in conversations with each other, each other, what we do in worship, what we do in time is the, in the word, is that we remind ourselves that we have a home that we're going to. And that we have a Jesus who is walking through us, walking with us every step of the way. We've been given, we're a people who have been given a future and a hope. So where are you coming from? Wherever you're coming from, Jesus is with you there. He wants to meet you there. But where are you going? Would you let that question roll around in you even as we worship? And as Jesus exposes the places that maybe you're living in your lostness, would you let your mind and your heart be drawn to the Jesus who has found you? Let me pray for us. Father, we are so thankful for stories like this uh, that, that remind us that you choose to use people and come to people and make promises to people not because of their perfection or how good they are, Jesus, but because you delight in using and loving broken people. And we confess before you, uh, Lord, our lostness, our loneliness and our pain, our desperation. And we come to you, Jesus, as children uh, crying out that you would meet us that you would care for us, that you would see us, and we praise you for the fact that you have. Lord, as we uh, tune into the reality of that in our worship, uh, would, you, would you capture our hearts, our minds, Lord, our imaginations at what it means to be people who have been found in you. Let me pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.